Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. All right, well, hello, Murray. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's great to be asked. I I look forward to our chat. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it'll be a casual chat. There's a lot of history, I think, at at play here. And and I think we're going to have a lot of of fun with things. So believe it or not, um, and maybe the audience, uh, you will see if they believe it or not, I'm actually going to do less talking. Everyone knows I have the tendency to ramble and talk really, really, really super fast. But I'm actually going to relax, chill out, you know, just kind of go with the flow, chat with you, see how things uh, are going on your end. So I'd like to maybe start off because it is a global audience that will be listening to this. Um, maybe introduce yourself and, and maybe start off with uh, how did you get into forestry? Well, I'm not sure whether an international audience would have ever seen this show, but way back when, when I was in high school, there was a show on TV called The Forest Rangers. And it was this depiction of these young kids canoeing down lakes and streams and waving at campers and I thought that's got to be a good way to make a living and so uh, that was really why I uh, went into forestry and when I got into uh, high school I did one of those tests where they say you know what do you want to do for a career and so I I took the, the test and basically came back that well you're not a good candidate for university and you should always stay away from computers. So I thought, well, forestry makes sense then. Um, <laughs> and so I headed off into a, a technical college and that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. Well, well I, I think it's fair to say knowing you for many years that uh, part of that uh, computers are, are very much part of your, uh, your life or maybe professional career, especially as you started dabbling with LIDAR data and whatnot. And, and we'll get to that uh, in a moment per se. So, so thinking of, of that journey, you, you went to school, you did some training and I think you was the MNR uh, Ontario Ministry of Natural uh, Resource. Was that the first entry into work and, and largely carried you through? Tell me, tell me more about that. So I started my career in 1983 with Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry and started off um, in research uh, right out of school, um, involved with remeasuring permanent sample plots. So going back out and measuring you know, tree by trees over many years and uh, sort of moved around the province in that capacity, was put down in, in um, the center of our, our political world in, in Queen's Park in Ontario, where somehow I was expected to run a field program all through Northern Ontario from downtown Toronto. <laughs> so that was a little bizarre. Um, and uh, then evolved and in moving into Sault Ste. Marie and setting up, uh, working with a team of people to set up a provincial growth and yield program, and then moved across the province into North Bay, um, looking at still building growth and yield models. And it frustrated me to no end that we could develop really good growth and yield models if we had information about the trees. And every time I sort of looked at my inventory information, I didn't have the level of detail that I really wanted. And so that kind of got me looking at what are the technologies might be out there to uh, improve our information on forest so that we could grow them into the future. Yeah, yeah. So thinking back to maybe your, your younger days, would, would you have ever imagined, you know, as you worked through your career that computers technology would be so integral to your to your career not a chance not a chance i mean compasses were like state-of-the-art back then and i remember just even when gps technology started coming out there and people didn't want to trust them 
um, there's a lot of pushback and just trying to get that into the toolbox of, of field equipment. And so now it, it's been kind of exciting watching technology slowly make it into um, a profession that tends to be kind of old school um, in, the, in their approach to field work. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, things that people now take for granted, like tablets in the bush and things like that, that was never thought of back then. It was basically pencil and paper. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I remember pencil and paper. I, I, I do love the tablets in the field, but I can only imagine that that uh, back in the day. Not that I'm that old or young or whichever it is, but but it's interesting to see the pace of change, I guess, in technology. Even the time we've we've known known each other, uh, which is for sure which is crazy for sure. Uh, so I think on on that front, for like our audience per se, um, I've known you since. I was thinking the other night about this as I was stewing the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, but for for our listeners, I've known Murray. We've known each other since 2005 or 2006, yeah. which um, my daughter turned, Kira turned 11 um, just yesterday. So that that kind of gave that pang in the, the side. And, and, and you held Kira when she was a little baby in your, your, your house way back and I just thought, man, where does the time go? But that that'll probably be a side discussion, sidebar after this call, maybe in person. But but along those lines, I haven't seen you. I think I was trying to think when was the last time I saw you, and I it it might have been the when we were in Timmins. You know, there was that road trip that we went to. I think Timmins and was it the Sioux or Sudbury? We did a Sudbury. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that yeah. was the last time. And that that was several years ago. So any, anyhow, you're looking well. So so that's awesome to see you're you're healthy and doing well. Uh, so let's maybe go back to that time. So I, I if I remember correctly, I I had finished my PhD at Queens. I had moved down to Huntsville, Alabama. Um, I was talking to John Pino the other day. You know, kind of just catching up with people. And and I think and you correct me if I'm wrong. I think that first connection was the Forestry Research Partnership. And again, I think we're going to date ourselves because the FRP was at the Canadian Ecology Center up in Mattawa, which was like awesome place to, to go and, and do studies and whatnot. Um, but I think that was the first touch point that the FRP had a call out for some, some projects. I know from stateside, I was working for McDonald Detweiler and Associates. So there was that Canadian um, footprint and I was working for a LIDAR mapping company. And we had applied, not necessarily thinking we would succeed because the address was in Huntsville, Alabama, of all places. Uh, but I know you and a consortium applied as well, and I, and and you your team was successful. And I think I remember, if I remember that far, I'd come back and I'd reached out on a whim and said, "Hey, it's like, what do you know about lidar? It's like, do you want to chat and and whatnot?" And I think that was was that the first, you know, we connected somewhere, you know, the start that, of many napkins. But was that the that start? Was, that was it, and that was it. And uh, um, forever grateful for that reaching out. To myself it was John Pino and uh, you know we we had this work to do now and it was like what's next and uh, your goodness you sat down and we had pie yes. at a restaurant in Mattawa <laughs> and we I talked about it and you basically said okay guys here's sort of the way you got to go through this whole uh, process and so that sort of got us on our journey that got Ontario on his journey that got a lot of places in Canada on his journey yeah we're doing there so yeah thank you very much to you well i know i i have to thank you as well like you you've you've uh you've taken the needle uh super far much further you know in government and even work you're, you're doing now so i think it was one of those uh mutually beneficial uh meetings of the minds and and whatnot uh, so as i think back to that you know some of my fondest memories thinking of lighter and we're getting into it this is 2006 i think with Tembeck, Romeo Millet Forest. This was what, half a, 
half a point per square meter, whatever that means. And we were like, oh, this is big data. How are we going to handle it? Uh, I think if you remember, we had those cool Lassie rugged drives that were all the rage. They're orange and, yep. and, and what, like 128 gigs or something like that. And we were like, wow, this is like awesome. Although times have changed now. Um, thinking of, of that journey, what are some of the, 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 the things, I guess, as you started that journey kind of surprised you in terms of just getting into this new technology, relatively new? What, what were some of those things in hindsight, as you look back, that uh, if you could tell yourself back then, it's like, watch out for this or think about that. Are there any things that popped to mind as you started that journey? Because that's, you know, almost, you know, 2006 to now, like that's, you know, yeah. many moons per se. For sure, data storage, data, data handling, and also the fact that people don't recognize or because of their, if they're starting at LIDAR now, there's a whole host of tools out there that one can go to between, you know, open source to commercial packages. Um, some of our spatial, most of our spatial platforms now could handle LiDAR data, but back right. in 2006, there wasn't anything. In fact, we did everything in our shop, basically in a DBF format. We took it out of uh, sort of a spatial world and just dealt with it as uh, straight files and then put them back in at the end and slowly methodically went through and sort of built all the, all the, the products. You know, what I did over months before I can do literally do in hours now. And so, yeah. you know, that, that, and the file storage, I mean, up until recently, we were still shipping hard drives around and uh, you know, yeah, they're bigger hard drives, but there's still a time and a cost of just even uploading right. the data. And so now, you know, we're looking at other ways of, of processing that and sharing the results much quicker. And uh, that, that's exciting. Yeah. And I, and I remember during that time, by then from a career point of view, I guess you were in North Bay by then. Um, out on the office in Trout Lake, I remember downstairs, Dave Nesbitt yep. was one inside, yep, you had your, sure. your corner office there with a lot of gear uh, floating around, uh, per se. So I guess thinking of, of that journey, you know, you've done fantastic work, um, as I said, you know, starting in, in Romeo with the Tembex side, now where I am, I guess now, um, GreenLink per se, and, and you've obviously worked on different sites in Hearst and provided leadership on, uh, on that front. Uh, thinking of a couple things so you know i'm going to ask just because we know each other well and i you know i'm going to irritate you per se so let's talk about age i i remember many moons ago you know murray woods would be on on the stage and like oh forget about age people it's like ain't ain't ever gonna happen what's the science telling us today about lidar and and age what are your thoughts on that has there been a, a change in thinking or new research direction what, what are you thinking on that front well, we, we've done some work at actually trying to predict age. Um, and I, I guess it comes back to, for all, ABA, an area-based approach to LIDAR inventories to produce estimates of volume in BA, whatever, we don't need age. Right. However, usually it's the systems following the inventory that require age, sort of a planning system. And so everybody still wants age. So we're still leaning on photo interpretation generally or time sense disturbance mapping to sort of provide us that age uh, into our planning cycle combined and fused with the LIDAR inventory. But we've been dabbling around looking at predicting age and there's been some work in Quebec, there's been work here in Ontario where you know our root mean square are probably plus or minus 10 years. Wow. Uh, so you know it's it's, it's possible, but it's sort of not directly predicting it sort of in relation to other things. And so, so, so does that mean I could prepare it. a new t-shirt now that says like, I'm converted maybe on the back or, or something with age? 
Maybe. I, Maybe. I have another one that says LIDAR never lies. That's, there you that, go. that's mine. There and I've go. sent many a field crew out to remeasure their heights because I could tell how badly they were done. Yeah, absolutely. So, so walk me through some of your experiences on that front, because we talked about area-based approach for, for our listeners. We also have individual tree inventories, you know, ITC or ITD or, or whatever jargon we want to go with. What's what's the state of the art today in terms of your view? Because you're, you're you're you know you're I, I we know each other well. I know you well. You're a humble guy. You're not uh, very you're not the one to beat your chest. So I'm going to do that for you. You know you are a, a leader in in the thinking space here around how you apply lidar technology, photogrammetric technology to lidar inventory. So on the ABA side, maybe we'll start there. How do you see the landscape? What's the state of the art today? Uh, I, I think it's it's evolving. I think we know how to do the basic stuff very well in terms of making direct predictions predictions for a 20 by 20 meter space or whatever. I think we're learning that uh, one forest type in Ontario is equal to another one. Example would be a boreal forest, sort of a single story situation and ABA has a direct application. But as we move into systems where we do partial harvesting, um, like shelterwood harvesting in, in the Great Lakes St. Lawrence forest where we're going in every 20 years and we're removing parts of the stand and developing regeneration, we end up with this multi-tier um, structure. And we need to be able to split our inventory estimates by layer to be, to be useful to the manager because they can decide what layer they're gonna manage. So they wanna know what the inventory is for that layer, not including the understory. And so that's where a lot of our current research now and we're trying to um, not remove photo interpretations from structure calls, but allow the LIDAR to provide a much more objective uh, prediction measurement of that structure that we can then use to tease out what those layer predictions are. So that's kind of a lot of our research right now is looking at that with some pretty dense LIDAR um, to do that, not sort of that half point stuff that we started off in 2006 <laughs> on the Romeo for sure. You know, we're dealing with single photon LIDAR now, um, seeing how that can be useful. And, you know, we're dealing with 30 to 40 points per square meter. However, we realize that we're not getting the, the lower understory as well as we can with terrestrial mo mobile LIDAR systems. So we're looking at maybe fusing some of that stuff together to see what we're missing, but for sure, um, I think the nuts and bolts were laid out well by you and your in your PhD work. And we've just been basically expanding that application and just seeing where it holds and, and where it may fall apart. Right. And try to try to refine how we're going to uh, improve that going forward. Yeah, so definitely I'd like to chat more about the SPL in, in a moment. But I guess thinking of, of uh, again, you know, I finished the PhD in 2006, but you know, roughly when we met was that time frame. So very much a lot of uh, my own thinking in a commercial centric view, if you will, um, was shaped by by our working relationship. And, and for the the listeners, like Murray and I were notorious. We'd go for dinner and then take every napkin available, and we'd leave with like napkins with like all sorts of diagrams, you know, and and ideas. And 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 the beauty of the relationship, I think, is we both had the capacity and capability to execute on some of those 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 ideas and really move the yardstick uh, forward per se. But on one of those points, I'm curious because with a lot of uh, listeners, they, they probably dabble with airborne LIDAR right now. And some, uh, maybe in Latin America, you know, there are in other jurisdictions, a lot of UAV uh, LIDAR uh, running per se. Uh, but there's always been this idea of, do you put a two meter threshold or not 
on, on the point clouds for ABA. It came from Scandinavia, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the publications of Nielsen, Holmgren, you know, the, the, the Scandinavian contingent, NACIT and whatnot. There's always a two meter threshold. We've always had this debate. Uh, well, I should say we had a debate. I, we always had this thesis of there's value in that two meter to zero meter in terms of describing what that structure is. Where's, where's the current thinking on that, that nowadays in terms of ABA from a methods point of view? Do you, do you hard threshold or do you keep it? I think generally the, the theory is they still threshold. Um, now, I continue to do both. I continue to threshold and c continue to go down to zero and then compare and say, I don't gain anything from thresholding. And where I see the gain actually is in those partial harvesting systems okay. where we're trying to deal with understanding the distribution of, of, of the stems within the plot. LIDAR and volume prediction, for example, is height driven. LIDAR measures height, height's volume. So there's still challenges in LIDAR when you have a 38 meter tall white pine stand that's been um, partially harvested and you have gaps between those trees, but you still have a high height. And so it still wants to estimate high volumes, but you remove part of that volume. And so we, we struggle with trying to get the LIDAR to understand the right combination of predictors to deal with that space between the stems. And so what we found is that including those low values, including even ground returns in some case, we can actually get a little bit better prediction, but it's still a work in progress for that. Right, right, absolutely. And I think thinking of the work you've done, you know, Roy Millet, Forrest Hurst, Petawawa, you know, a lot of great scientific papers. I think one of your papers was maybe the first, you know, operational LIDAR inventory published. It's, uh, I can remember, I don't know if it's figure six, uh, you know, with all the predictions yeah. and stuff like that, you know, that, that was a really important piece of work. Uh, thinking of the forestry companies that are listening to this right now, maybe looking to embark on, on LIDAR inventories. Um, sometimes maybe there's a disconnect between what industry, forest industry is seeking from what a, what a forest inventory means to what a, an academic or researcher, but what would you, what would you impart to like a, a a practitioner looking to to do an ABA. What what are those key things that um, yes, you know the Canadian Forest Service, uh, you know uh, uh, Dr. Joanne White has published on you know best practices. I think there's a iteration two by now. Maybe there's a, a three um, per se and and some guidelines there. But I think we've talked about in the past that there's there's a science and an art as well. So thinking about those practitioners and all the the ABAs you've done, what what are maybe the top three things you'd you'd say to a practitioner? Say you know what you you really need to think about this and, and maybe for instance back in our day. Uh, oh, your field of view is too narrow or wide or, or how much overlap do you have between the flight lines? You know, that level of detail, uh, I might argue are not as material anymore, but, but what would maybe be three top points you'd impart? Well, I think that's, that's a good one. One of the challenges I had is people would come to me, a company would come to me or, or counties or something and say, you know, we want to light our inventory. What, do, what are my LIDAR specs that I need to collect? And I kind of go, hmm, we just basically use whatever LIDAR was provided and we always got Perfect. good results. And so to me, that, there's a message there. And so, yes, when you read the papers about uh, scan angles, whether you want to you know, not use any pulses that have angles that are high, um, we tended to use them all and we still um, have got very good results. And I think everybody has to remember that 
you need to compare the results you're getting from a LIDAR ABA to what you had before, if you knew how good even before was. Now the fact we can put some numbers around how well the predictions are working, which I think is, is really key. But it's also a little bit, uh, a bit of a slap in the face because people say, what do you mean you're predicting BA plus or minus five square meters at a 20 by 20 meter pixel? That doesn't sound very good. And I can say, well, what do you have now? Well, what, what's your stand estimate like? Right. How good is that? And people go, well, they can't answer it because they haven't got a clue. And I'm probably jumping ahead here, but one of the things we always have to remember when we're predicting pixels, there's an error associated with that, but nobody manages a pixel. People manage an aggregate of pixels. And so once you have a look at expressing your prediction over 30, 40, 50, 100 pixels, a stand, if that's what you want to call it, then your error goes way down. And we've, we've demonstrated that to people. So I'm really excited about what ABA offers. Um, I think getting back to your question, one of the, the challenges, again, with people who are interested in ABAs is sometimes they're not willing to invest the time in the GPS part of the project right and so they say we have field plots can't you use those and i said well how good is the spatial positioning of that plot and they said well you know i used a recreational grade gps <laughs> i don't want to name any of of them out there and i said well you know what if it's in an even age plantation and that that air is plus or minus 30 meters it may not matter right. but if you're into a diverse vertical structure situation that plot positioning has to be really good in order to maximize the value you're going to get for the lidar dollars you're spending right. and so that was probably my number one thing to try to help people understand yeah no that that's a that's a great point so um you know as we do uh, you know, we've a lot of folks don't know on on our side, you know, we're, we're up in the 40, 50 million hectare range of these these area based inventories. It, we, we, we see the same thing, no matter what, how you reinforce that protocol sampling protocol on that that plot center that positioning, inevitably someone pulls out the uh, I will not name it either, but a black <laughs> device that uh, everyone had a forcer had, you know, hung on their vest type of thing that um, they thought that was high precision and it's created some problems because of the precision of the LIDAR data. Absolutely. So, so thinking on that front, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, they're probably listening and saying, okay, I've, I've got some plots and, you know, maybe not all of them are useful. I'm assuming, you know, still fixed area plots. We're talking about 20 meter pixels, some think 25. What, what's your expert recommendation of those folks listening now on, on, on 20, 25 pixel? What does that mean on plot size? Is there a, a general rule of thumb or is it really variable by, by forest type and conditions? I think they, they should be variable by forest type a bit, but I think we, speaking from uh, an agency point of view, you probably want it to be consistent across, across your area. I'm talking about a province or a state type of thing. Um, typically a 20 by 20 meter pixel is going to be adequate, especially for, you know, boreal forest conditions, um, to talk internationally, once you start getting into big trees, large crowns, then a 20 by 20 meter plot size becomes small. When you think about how many trees right. physically can fit in a, in a 20 by 20 meter area. So we're talking 11.28 meter radius. And so you get a big 35, 40 meter white pine tree with a big crown. Sometimes you only have, may have one tree in the plot. And so what you're measuring on the ground becomes less, less use. Right. Um, however, we haven't seen a great deal of, of 
difference in the results, to be honest, so right. far. So right. it, it may be my old growth and yield worries about <laughs> about sampling enough trees on our ground plots that, that sort of taunting me about that one right well, well that 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 highlights your background right as as a forester being in that space you know uh your fes work like a lot of people don't realize there's all sorts of other aspects of murray woods uh, in terms of expertise it's not just on the lidar um inventory side so what i'm hearing really is fixed area plots circular you still just need to do the plot center. Don't do the four corners because then the GNSS oh, might please, throw you off. Please. I've yeah. had I've had people with hexagon shaped plots. I've had <laughs> I've had trapezoids. And one thing you can do with GPS a square plot, you'll end up with a trapezoid. Right. Um, you know, there's just no go circular. It just makes life a lot easier for everybody. Right. Absolutely. So bigger forced, bigger trees, basically. You might need a, a slightly larger circular right. plot, but yeah, great. And People can reach out to, to you for more information on that front. So let's maybe shift gears. Uh, I, I feel like this might generate some debate or discussion. Um, uh, ITC. Um, again, for our listeners, uh, Murray's got a rich history going back to uh, uh, Francois Goujon, Don Leckie, and some work there. Um, testing it on imagery and LIDAR and whatnot. Um, uh, on the limb geomatic side, we've been involved with um, challenges on that front. We've developed our own technology and what, and there's a host of other people there. We, again, we go back far enough. We can think of stateside companies that have come and gone that have possibly negatively impacted forestry companies, consulting companies in Canada as a, a function of that. But um, wh where do you sit today on on ITC? Is it ready to ready to go for people, or is it still? Uh, it, it depends. It's interesting. I think it comes. It depends on where you're coming from. Coming from the research world, uh, when I whenever I see somebody present ITC results. I keep waiting for the slide that shows here's how well we did in the validation. And I very rarely see that. Um, so I'm not saying that the results aren't good. My thoughts on, on ITC are that if you are doing individual trees, whether it be imagery or, or, or near infrared LIDAR right now, if you're looking at segmenting individual trees in an urban situation along a parking lot, you can get a good segmentation of those crowns. And once you have a good segmentation of those crowns, you can use the structure returns from the LIDAR, the intensity from the near infrared, or the image um, uh, sort of spectral signatures to help you do a really good job at predicting individual species or close to a species group, like a larger species group, like taller hardwood uh, versus intolerant hardwoods. The reality in a forest situation is if you can't segment the trees well, then you start getting overlap. And that's kind of where I see it falling apart is that, you know, once you have especially hardwood trees intermingling, then it becomes very difficult for any algorithm to try to split those exactly. And that's where I see the biggest issue with ITC falling apart. Do I want it to work? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course I want it to work. And maybe if we'd be happier with broader species types like you know for us taller hardwoods you know jack pine black spruce plantations um for each one of those if people were willing to work at that level i think we we may have a product but i don't think we're we're to the point where we can split out individual trees i i want somebody to prove me wrong right right well i i often say it's, it's still the the holy grail 
it, it works under certain conditions and then other times it doesn't. And I share your, um, your uh, uh, I'll call it frustration where often there's, uh, we used to call them dog and pony shows in our early day. And it's not to say everyone does that, but the pretty pictures, but, but you're right. It's the, the, the meat and potatoes is in that table that is ugly and boring to see, but it, it really compares what was on the ground with what you said you pulled out of the data, whatever that is. And often that is, that is missing. And sometimes it is included. And then we feel deflated because the numbers may not be good or maybe as good, right? Like not, it's not 96. And, and to your point, well, you're comparing it to what, um, you know, is 70% good enough right. when you got nothing. It's like, I don't know, I might take that per se. Um, so, so thinking of that, you know, a lot of things we're seeing. Uh, so on my side, I'm obviously thinking about the future. I always have, I think today, a lot of people recognize what's happening in the landscape. Um, didn't understand maybe what I was thinking about a decade ago do now. I'm now thinking another decade out. I was curious to see what are you seeing in trends like because you were early with um, now slam everyone's got their slam device whether on a UAV or in the field type of thing you're doing that in Petawawa years ago um, testing different technologies a lot of people are doing mobile backpack uh, you know a lot of hover map stuff and all great technologies but do you think we're closer to that that digital twinning of that force, recognizing we got ABA that'll get us some estimates, the ITC will get us close, depending how you you skin the cap per se. There's value in both. Uh, your thesis is it's not one or the other. Photogra photogrammetry, lidar, ITC, ABA, you know, put them all together to achieve that outcome. But are you seeing certain trends um, in terms of what the future might look like for a digital forester in the toolkit that they might have by default? Well, I think the backpack type mobile scanning um, that you talked about, you know, whether it's backpack, you're carrying it around like we did with some of our early work. And I know there's some new ones on the market now. I'm a little bit out of touch with where that technology is right now. The potential is great. There's all kinds of things to still be worked out by bright students. Um, one would be species. One would be live or dead. I mean, you scan a tree live or dead, it kind of looks the same in a point cloud. Right. And so um, I see them very useful for regeneration surveys. However, in our comparisons of, of looking at whether we measure BA equally well with a, a mobile scanner versus what we measure on the plots, we have great one-to-one -one correlation. That, that's, it's, it's possible to do, but we had to add in the dead trees to the live trees because again, you couldn't decipher that. There's still lots of room for the algorithms that process um, terrestrial and mobile LIDAR, individual tree detection stuff, some of the same issues from the airborne, but a little bit different level. You know, you're trying to clean up um, noise, which is usually, you know, for us, balsam fir or something growing around the, the larger stem at DBH and trying to recover a DBH for the tree when you're already, it's covered on two sides, four sides by regeneration. Some of those issues still have to be thought through how we're going to do that. And I think you're right. It's the fusing of the technologies is where the future is going to be because with airborne, we'll never get as good a picture. Now, maybe UAVs are coming closer, but you know, even with you know, a single photon LIDAR, really dense near-infrared SPL LIDAR, we're never going to get the type of information at the ground layer we're going to get by walking through the forest. And so if we could fuse that even in a sampling approach basically have our calibration plots, scan the calibration plots, measure the trees normally as we always did, and then fuse that point cloud together and maybe express that over the landscape, we can maybe add all kinds of extra value. Things that we've never been able to do with an ABA approach like stem form, 
We right. produce volume estimates like every single tree is a perfect straight tree just right out of the textbook. But anybody who uh, has been in the bush walking around knows that every tree can be different from others, especially in hardwoods. Where do they fork? Where do they branch? Where's right. that merchantable length? And so our volumes could be much more refined that way. Right, right. Well you, well, you said a keyword there and probably a good time to segue because I, I think a lot of people who may be listening and know us are, are probably wanting to hear the the LIDAR experts views on SPL, uh, SPL right now. So maybe, maybe introduce us to what it is at a high level. You know, you're always great at explaining, you know, complex ideas in simpler <laughs> forester terms. And, and so walk us through maybe what SPL is, um, why you're excited about it, and maybe what, what the early potential you're seeing with it is. Well, I'm, I'm definitely not a single photon LIDAR expert in any means but basic the basics are it's it's a, a, a sensor that we can fly at higher altitudes and faster aircraft with a wider swath which swath width which results in lower cost and let's face it lidar acquisition is about cost in many cases it always comes down to you know how much does it cost me per hectare how many times kevin have you been asked that question <laughs> it's the <laughs> and, first question uh, <laughs> yeah and so single photon is attractive from that point of view, but it's a, it's a different beast. Um, instead of near infrared, we're playing with a green band. We also have a pulse of LIDAR data that's emitted from the sensor. It goes through a, a filter that basically splits that into a hundred beamlets. So each pulse is now split into a hundred, which allows us much higher densities at, at the, say the top of the canopy level, but they also have a lot less energy because they've been split from that original source of that one pulse. And so one of the questions we had with single photon is how well we're going to be able to penetrate through different forest canopies to reach the forest floor. And so that was definitely one of our concerns early on with single photon LIDAR. And uh, we did a pilot study in Petawawa having a look at that and we've gone, done a lot of follow-up stuff there's papers published on it now that talk about how well we did under certain forest conditions with the single photon lidar and we don't need to get one return every square meter um, on the right. ground um, to to get to basically do what we want to do which is sort of normalize that lidar return um, from a z value to a height value of the tree and the specs were met by single photon lidar um, in the Romeo, or sorry, in the Petawal Research Forest. However, we do see areas where, uh, with really heavy uh, overstory um, and the heavy understory, we have some big gaps where there's no returns. Where with the near infrared, you know, a few years later, so the stands was a little bit different. We were getting some returns from traditional uh, linear mode lighter systems. Did it impact the results? No. Um, okay. But you know, there's there's still people, a lot of people kind of asking whether where SPL fits in terms of typical like floodplain mapping, um, you know, and leaf on conditions. Leaf off conditions is not going to be an issue, of course. Um, so I don't know, from the forestry point of view right now, looks like we're good. Um, at least in the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence, we're just rolling out in the in the boreal now, again, having a look there and see what how things are going. Right. And, and, and the province of Ontario has kind of put all their eggs in one basket. They're flying SPL across the, the Greenland base there. And I know a lot of yep. licensees are excited and hoping for experts like yourself to kind of come in and help and, and, and translate that, that big data for large volume data into something that mean, is meaningful to them. So it's great to hear the SPL is there. I know there's always been Geiger mode as well. There's been other types of 
if we call them more advanced or maybe just different uh, flavors of technology. But you're absolutely right. When when I talk with people, uh, it's a whole new vocabulary. Like, are we talking linear mode? Are we talking about SPL and the point densities? You know, I think you said SPL yours was about 40 squares. Uh, yeah, 40 I've seen numbers. Depends on where you some. I, I said between 30 and 40 generally. Right, right. And, and, you know, there's linear mode sensors now that that can, you know, on one pass, get up to 100, 120 points per square meter. So uh, uh, we, we may be at the age where there's multiple different types of technology that for the average forester, it's probably going to come back down to, as you said, cost. If they all roughly get me the same thing, uh, is it just a cost of unit economics decision at that point? So so we'll see on, on that particular front. Um, so I know yeah, for people who don't know, like you are, I'm going to say technically re retired, even <laughs> though I'm not sure what that means, but, uh, but you've definitely retired from the provincial government, passed the torch there, doing other cool stuff, maybe share with, with the listeners, what are some of the other things I believe you're, you're doing the, your work under the tree dimensions uh, banner consulting work, still collaborating with, you know, Dr. Penner, Dr. Pitt, uh, you know, hosts of people, Margaret and Doug, you know, it's again, small community here from a, a different era, but maybe tell the, the, the listeners what's, what's on your plate. What are you having fun with uh, nowadays now that you're more, more, more free, if we want to call it that. Uh, um, well, it's exciting times. And yeah, and I, I didn't raise this point early enough and I should have, um, talked about our collaboration early on but really any work that that i've been involved with has always been a team it's never been me um and i'm glad you mentioned margaret and doug joanne white um super people dave nesbitt um you know sort of all made this this stuff happen so we've all benefited from that i think the community the forest community has benefited from a lot of this work um yeah, I'm, I'm retired, but I, I really can't give up on this stuff. And, you know, you mentioned Ontario's just embarked in SPL and you and I were sort of uh, talking LIDAR since 2005 and in Ontario has now moved forward over the last since 20, I guess 2018 was when they started flying SPL. And so they now have a full inventory program that puts out calibration plots. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but some of the other work we demonstrated that instead of, you know, going out and trying to find um, jack pine that's three, 30 meters tall, jack pine that's 10 meters tall, you know, different sort of structure to put plots on, we actually let the LIDAR um, tell us where to put the plots. Um, we don't care about species, we care about LIDAR structure because that's what we're actually modeling. And so Ontario's embarked on that and uh, they've flown probably, I won't six forest areas, forest management license areas right now. And so I'm involved uh, with them on a project to help uh, process that data. Again, trying to change the paradigm from you and I, you know, having like a member CDs. Um, yeah. we're, we're now doing it on the cloud. And uh, yeah. basically from step A to, to Z over very quick times and getting those results in people's hands. Yeah. And that's to me the, 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 the huge advantage of LIDAR. And it just frustrates me. If we're going to fly LIDAR in 2018 and put plots in 2019, and I expect by the end of 2019, you're going to have the product. Right. Not five years later, which is, or 10 years later, which is typical sometimes in a, in a traditional forest inventory sense. Yeah. So we talked earlier about the fact that okay, ABA is kind of, it is operational. But there's always ways to improve it. And some of the things we talked about, that structure prediction, um, trying to understand how to automate um, 
the structure prediction at a pixel level, and then how to aggregate that structure prediction at a pixel level to a management area, whether it's a stand or whatever, a harvest block, how do you deal with that um, in terms of assigning a, a vertical structure? And then how do you allocate the predictions by layer? So that, and as a person who's processing LiDAR data, I'm not going to say this is the management layer. That's somebody else's decision to make. All I want to do is provide them. Here's the volume and BA at those layers. You decide what you're going to do. And also, I didn't say here's the volume and layer by, by species. I still can't do species with the LiDAR. We're still leveraging photo interpretation species. But I think, you know, talked about the future. The future to me is satellite with the, the different seasons that you can get good satellite imagery now, there's all kinds of other ways that we can add species along that time series to allow us to add that extra value to a LiDAR derived inventory. Again, yeah. we may have to coarsen, we're not talking individual tree species, we may be talking forest units or forest groups of species, but I still think that's going to be very enlightening. And yeah. the other project, just to quickly wrap up that we're involved with is, is site productivity. We talked about age before. Um, trying to get away from using kind of to typical site index per se, can we look at mapping height growth? Mm -hmm. And so we have the advantage here in Ontario of having multiple LIDAR acquisitions over time. So on the Romeo that we all started with, we have 2005, 2006, we have a 2018 LIDAR acquisition. And in the middle, I have... Um, DAP or pixel matching or SGR of, of image point cloud. And again, another you know, opportunity of leveraging a LIDAR derived DTM with an image point cloud in the interim, can we actually look at documenting growth? And therefore I can have growth rate by pixel and can I use that to advance stands over time? And so that's kind of our thrust in the, in the short term. Yeah, I, I often, uh, when I meet young people, I often say, you know, the, the yous are the world that you should listen to this because that's where the research is going, the, the true research versus we've seen over the, the years, the, the usual empirical thing, it's been done and whatnot. And, and really these things you described, I, I think are, are perfect uh, tidbits, uh, gems in terms of people, younger people maybe looking at doing graduate school or, or doing research uh, from that point of view. It's a fascinating topic always amazed. We were involved with uh, an NSERC pro uh, project called AWARE and the students, the caliber of students and their work was just phenomenal. Um, right. A right. lot, of, lot of fantastic from UAV front to po image point clouds to um, using 3D photos in the forest right through species prediction with LIDAR. Just a long list. A lot of great uh, masters and PhD work came out of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, we, we could talk forever. I'm sure our, our, our listeners are sensing, uh, you know, we can go sideways, backwards, <laughs> forwards, up, down, um, circular. There's, there's a host of technologies out there. I, I agree that space boring component, you know, when we look at uh, even the, the venture back side of things, there's a whole nother community. Uh, you know, I think there is a, a satellite uh, with a wood component that went up um, into orbit just uh, not too long ago. So I agree. Um, we're going to see a bigger push on that front. It's great to see you're, you're leveraging that expertise to the province because I know uh, since the get-go, anytime you deal with a government engine, there's other things afoot that people um, you know, may always complain, oh, it's too slow. Why can't they do this? But there are other factors and 
things afoot as a function of being government that that like it or not you got to kind of stick handle and navigate through so uh great to hear you on the expertise side that that you'll be providing or have been providing them that that expertise um, so thinking as as we wind down as i said I, I can we could chat forever it's been a while since we connected but Thinking back, um, again, you're still a young guy, right? Like you started working pretty early. So as much as we say, you know, you're retired, it's like you're still a young guy by all standards with uh, still a lot of great things to do. Uh, you know, for, for our audience, there's jokes, you know, when we used to see each other, you'd be like, oh, Dr. Lim, and, and I'd be like Dr. Woods. And, and, and often when I say that, I say it in, in the most respectful way, because, uh, you know, in the past we've talked about, you're like, you know, I've done the school, you know, there's other people who've gone for graduate degrees and for me the passion you bring to the research the the curiosity it's infectious and, and in all honesty that's uh, some of my fondest memories when I worked with you is just go 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 it's like well, what about this yeah let's go that's what about this and just uh, going forward so that's truthfully something uh, I miss as Lim Geo's kind of grown and evolved to, to what it is and and you're in the research world at some point you know there's there was a natural bifurcation that that was going to happen uh, just as a function of where we are but thinking of some of your highlights you know we've traveled internationally and, and whatnot uh, what would maybe be you know one or two highlights uh, when you look back to the the, the the your lidar journey there um, obviously there's so much we haven't covered on this this podcast but what are some of those highlights that that you think back to that really kind of make you give you that little twinge in the gut in terms of yeah that was a that was a good time i miss it and and whatnot is, is there anything that kind of pops to mind seeing you in the bush that was always a good thing um yeah i i don't know i mean i i I enjoy going to conferences. I enjoyed listening to students. It, it, it rattled me a little bit sometimes when there was the disconnect from the academic world versus sort of the operational reality and where I wanted things to get, get to. Um, I think probably looking back, the best part of this whole journey has been the teamwork. Um, and you know, I don't provide a lot, maybe passion, thank you. Um, but I think it's it's being able to pull people together um, to work on a common common project. And those who may not know Kevin well, I have on my wall here, based on my, you know, enthusiasm or passion, it says out of scope. I got that from Kevin many times <laughs> in email. <laughs> I said we would do this and you want to do that out of scope. <laughs> There was never a shortage of ideas for me, my friend. It was it was like a machine that just kept cranking things going forward and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's fond memories all around. And as I said, again, you're being humble in terms of your your contribution. I think, uh, you know, in one of our earlier conversations, we're of a, a, a generation that I want, I don't want to say people have forgotten, uh, but maybe um, there's always someone before you just as they were before us. Um, and, and there's lessons to be learned. And, and I think, you know, with your contribution, continued contribution, it'll keep us on the course of, of not repeating and, you know, doing that, that circle of like, oh, did we do this versus kind of moving it forward? I love the idea of hybrid, but as I said, knowing you long enough for, for our listeners, um, you know, this is a guy who knows his stuff uh, above and beyond and, and definitely encourage people to reach out to talk about anything. Because as I said, you've, you've done terrestrial mobile you have done airborne you've done dap uh you know sgm whatever there's a wealth of knowledge there uh, so uh, one last question more on, on the the fun side since we were talking about uav and whatnot um lots of news lately about ufos 
and footage is do you believe in ufos or do you think they're just uavs with uh next generation lidar strapped onto that thing what, what do you think i feel like i am not keeping up with the news i, I haven't really followed that there's been an abundance <laughs> i have i have no problem if there is or there is i don't know yeah don't know. you'd be not too busy with your your data room probably That's in the right. room next door uh, at your house processing uh data per se so yeah. um so Murray, for people who want to reach out to you, uh, share your details, Twitter, website, LinkedIn, email, what website uh, address, what, what's the best way they can get in touch with you? I'm, I'm not that sophisticated. I'm still a guy that likes to go to the bush. It's just basically woods.murray at gmail.com. There you That's go. Reach me. There you go, everybody. So if you need to get a hold of uh, Dr. Murray Woods, as I call him, oh, feel yeah, free yeah. to reach out uh, on, on email from him. So my friend, thanks very much for, for joining the, the Digital Forester podcast. I hope you had fun. I had a lot of time listening to you and just reminiscing. Um, I hope the audience will hear some of these stories and maybe, you know, put a couple things together. And if they have questions, reach out to, to you or myself in terms of uh, people will learn. We, you and I both love to chat. Um, so sometimes we chat too much, uh, per se, but that's a good thing. But in any event, thanks very much, my friend, for joining on, um, wishing you the best in your retirement and looking forward to seeing all the cool things you're going to do. Just wish we'd kept those napkins. That's right. I agree. I agree. All right. Thanks, Murray. Thanks very much for joining. Thanks, guys.